I'm Chelsea Higgs-Wise, and this is Race Capital. This week on Race Capital, Jennifer Carter, mother of Orlando Carter, joins us to discuss her son's case. Orlando Carter was 27 years old when he was shot three times from behind this past New Year's Eve by a Richmond police officer. During the incident, which started as an alleged traffic violation, left Orlando with a broken leg and three shots from behind. He thankfully survived, but is now facing charges, and with his freedom at stake, his fate lies in the hands of the Richmond court system. In today's interview, Jennifer Carter describes the cost of police violence that's taken a hold of this whole family. Their continuing attempts to resource supports for their financial, physical, and emotional, and mental health But as you will hear today, on top of their day-to-day healing, they must also fight to have a biased judge removed. A judge with so much caucasity, his rhetoric in open court could only lead one to assume that his mind was already made up about Orlando. Judge Cheeks sees Orlando as guilty. In this week's interview, Jennifer describes her experience in his courtroom and their fight to have him removed from Orlando's case. This week on Race Capital, we hear this incident that happened on New Year's Eve means that this family has spent every day of 2021 working to repair their lives due to police violence. Stay tuned to hear the full episode with me and Orlando's mother, Jennifer Carter, as she tells us what she can about what happened on the night of New Year's Eve and how she was treated by the Richmond medical system and now the judiciary system as they continue to wait for Orlando's trial to begin. To read up on Orlando's fight this year, look up more reporting from Allie Rocket at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Thanks for listening to this episode of Race Capital on the one and only WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. Stay tuned for our Race Capital Reframe. You're listening to the Race Capital Reframe on the week of August 25th, 2021 with Nomi Isaac, Chelsea Higgs-Wise, and Kalia Harris. Let's kick it off with our local news. This week, many schools, colleges, and universities are headed back for in-person learning. We rounded up some of the latest education headlines as so many communities head back to school. So y'all, a couple weeks ago, the Northam administration announced a new health order that makes masks mandatory in all public and private K-12 school buildings, overruling an earlier decision by the administration in July to allow localities to decide for themselves. This change is based on CDC recommendations in response to the rising Delta variant. The mandate does allow for reasonable religious and medical accommodations. This news came as many surrounding districts in the state have experienced outbreaks, 
shutdowns, and quarantines after opening for in-person learning. A private school within the Richmond Public School System, Patrick Henry Elementary School, reported that all 53 of their fourth grade students were in quarantine a couple weeks ago following positive cases among students. Hopewell schools were forced to close last week due to critical staffing shortages. In Fredericksburg, Spotsylvania, Caroline, Fauquier, and Stafford counties, there have already been dozens of reported positive cases and hundreds of students and staff in quarantine since school started the second week of August. Y'all, we're not even done with August yet. And many parents and caregivers are extremely concerned about the return to in-person learning amid the Delta surge. Something to note is that currently, Virginia law requires that schools offer in-person instruction five days a week. In Chesterfield, there is a long wait list for virtual learning, and parents are being told to either send their students in person, join the virtual learning waiting list, or homeschool the children. Another issue in Chesterfield is the severe lack of bus drivers. The superintendent of the district urged parents to drive their children to school. So, Chelsea, how has that been? Kalia, thank you for asking. So I am a mother of a Chesterfield child. My child is seven years old and not yet eligible for the vaccine. She's in second grade. And so after a year and a half of virtual learning, there was actually less communication about this upcoming year than in previous years, which per my parent Facebook groups that I'm in, all of us were terrified. The localities are working separately, which means there's actually no congruency nor standard being set, even though that there is this mandated mask. But the procedures, what to expect in the schools, even like the seating with the desks are all based on locality. And because of the law that Kalia just brought up connected to school funding and handcuffing officials basically to keep these schools open and not closing due to COVID, it leaves us with very limited options when the virtual learning had to be submitted by June 3rd of this year. So we had to, in Chesterfield, we had to commit to virtual learning the first week of June. And now we're actually caught into this law that's wrapped up in the state funding to make our kids have to go to in-person learning. And we can all thank Joe Biden for that one. And so there, since there is this law connected to funding, connected to partisan politics, parents are actively being gaslit by public statements being put out by the school system. Kalia, you brought up Hopewell closing Friday, but what many people missed was Sunday night, Hopewell school systems put out a statement. And I'm going to basically paraphrase this statement, but please look it up yourselves. And what I read from it is that they were saying that, hey, they made a big mistake by closing. They overreacted and they talked to the Virginia Department of Health and realized they did not have to close. Now, they're still admitting that there were too many call outs to actually operate their school systems, but they wanted to assure everyone that there's no reason to assume that more people were positive and that they would not be doing this again, aka no other school systems can take this standard. For folks like us here at Race Capital and many folks that have had their eyes open since COVID has started, we really saw this narrative drowning in political cover as insulting our intelligence. 
I know I'm going on a rant and I'm still coming, but in Chesterfield, like Kalia said, there also weren't enough buses. So it takes over 40 minutes to an hour to drop her off, even longer to pick her up. So now just transporting my kid is a part-time job. And not to mention, just because you're vaccinated as an adult, it means that I roll up to these schools, I see all these kids in masks, but the adults don't have on masks standing outside in groups of like 30. And even the teachers and the administrations that are doing the drop-offs and pickups are leaning into their cars unmasked. I had to ask the principal to put her mask up before she leaned into my car. So all of this is going on. There's no communication as to how the kids are actually mitigating the space and the virus with the standards being set per the localities. Every day we drop off our kids. We wish them well, pick them up with a smile, asking them about their day, but really we're fishing for how they were kept safe while they're out of our care. It feels like I'm sending my kid to a war every day that she doesn't even know she's fighting. And I want to be really clear that if I had the resources to pull her out of public school, I absolutely would. And I'm sure many other parents feel this way. So this is literally day two. Thank you so much for sharing. I know my timeline is full of concerned parents and caregivers and people who are just lost in all of the confusion of what's going on with all of these these changes. So thank you, Chelsea. Well, while all of this back-to-school mayhem is going on, news came last week that yet another child under the age of 10 has died from COVID, becoming the fourth child in the Richmond area and the 10th in Virginia to die from the virus. According to the Virginia Department of Health, nine of those deaths occurred in 2021. Six were reported in the past three months. Five of the people were not vaccine eligible when they died, and four of those were in the Richmond area. We'll talk a little bit more about local and national COVID news in our COVID Watch. Well, in other school news, the Richmond Superintendent Jason Cameras has proposed a plan regarding school resource officers to the school board. Kenya Hunter of the Richmond Times-Dispatch reports that despite his own objections to police in schools, Cameras asserts that there aren't currently the votes on the school board to remove police from schools. Instead, he's proposing a plan to increase the power of school resource officers in Richmond schools. Despite ample research and evidence about the lack of effectiveness of police in school, including alarming arrest numbers from Richmond public schools, the plan Cameras is proposing includes renaming school security officers and RPS to, quote, care and safety associates. <laughs> Sorry, no me. No, no. Okay. I'm saying... <laughs> And so uh, he's also proposing to expand their authority, giving them the power to conduct home visits and lead conflict resolution circles among students. In the 2019 to 2020 school year, RPS students missed 18,000 days of school altogether due to out-of-school suspensions. The district also saw more than 121 arrests that same year. Data from the Virginia Juvenile Justice Department shows that a majority of juvenile intake complaints made by school resource officers in Richmond between 2017 and 2020 were against Black children. The school board neglected to take this issue up at this month's meeting. Instead, they moved it to next month's agenda. Y'all, this is absolutely horrifying. And, you know, the way that they're kind of trying to mask this increased surveillance of youth. Um, at home. It's disgusting. It's the co-opting of the language from last year with the safety and the care that they're now putting on the cops for me. And being able to 
navigate the conflict resolution and mediation of youth? Are you kidding me? Who in the world is mediating the conflict when the police are starting it? We all remember, wait till you're 18, your ass is mine. We still don't know the resolution of that conflict. This rebranding, you know, is is basically, you know, essentially just putting youth and children on parole is how it seems. The allowing of police or safety and care associates to come in and come into their homes and conduct visits, you know, like CPS. Yeah, now they're going to change them out of their uniforms and put them into more casual clothing. And like you're saying, Nomi, this whole they're able to conduct home visits thing is really alarming. And I think we should all put a closer eye to that because that can directly lead parents, caregivers right into the criminal justice system under further surveillance. And not to mention, it just continues to remove our children out of schools. Having cops anywhere near them means that they will not be in school. They will not be learning. And it is going to continue to push our families actually outside of Richmond if their kids can't attend these schools and be part of the community. So all of this is trash. The Virginia Department of Corrections has confirmed that two people incarcerated in Virginia prisons have died within a four-day period this month. The first death happened on August 10th at Lawrenceville Correctional Facility. The Lawrenceville Correctional Facility is the only privatized state prison in Virginia and is owned and operated by the GEO Group. The second death occurred on August 13th at the Augusta Correctional Facility. The news comes as the Virginia Department of Corrections recently has received two of the highest honors available to correctional agencies. The American Correctional Association, the ACA, has presented the department with two awards, quote, in recognition of Virginia Department of Corrections commitment to excellence, public safety, and the well-being of inmates, end quote. So gross. When I think back to the amount of people, the hundreds of people incarcerated that have gotten infected with COVID, that have died from COVID, it's just appalling that they get this type of award after mishandling this pandemic the whole time. I've got no proof of this, but as I was watching police shootings and violence the last few years, I've noticed this pattern that the departments will then actually award the officer or award these departments. And I'm wondering if it's the same pattern here of awarding these places that are actually doing the most violent things to human beings as as a way to continue to cover up these narratives. Again, can't prove it, but watch for that. How disgusting is it that anyone is getting an award for how well they keep a cage? Yeah, commitment to excellence in public safety is when you have four inmates die at Buckingham Correctional Center. You know, like, it's just appalling because even the correctional facilities listed in in the reports, you know, aren't the only ones. And and there's hundreds upon hundreds of cases and outbreaks in all of these facilities. And yeah, like you all are saying, you know, they're receiving an award, but but the system's going to legitimize the system. In other news... Richmond's Civilian Review Board Task Force presented their final report to the community last week after many public town halls, public meetings, and a survey that garnered responses from hundreds of Richmond residents. The CRB Task Force will recommend City Council to create a new independent city office that would not only investigate complaints about police misconduct, but discipline officers, review policies, and audit data. 
During their time on the task force, members surveyed more than 900 people who live or work in the city, canvassed neighborhoods, met with city leaders, rode along with police officers, and researched best practices from oversight bodies across the country. The task force is set to present the final report to the city council at the end of the month. If you want to listen to more on the Richmond CRB task force, be sure to check out our What's the Tea on the CRB episode from this summer. I have feelings about how this will turn out. And thank you for all of the work from the CRB task force members again. And make sure you check out that episode. In other news, unions representing some of Richmond's firefighters and police officers are pushing back against Mayor LeVar Stoney's mandate that employees get vaccinated against COVID-19. The president of the Richmond Firefighters Association, Local 995 of the International Association of Firefighters, asked for a, quote, timeout, end quote, from the mandate, calling the vaccine a, quote, unquote, experimental drug and saying its members just don't have enough information to make a sound decision, end quote. The Richmond Coalition of Police, which represents 350 officers of the Richmond Police Department's 750 sworn positions, says that it also supports pausing this mandate. I missed the part where they had an option. Isn't that the whole point of a mandate? Wait. Say it again. I'm just saying I missed the part where they had an option to pause the mandate. It seems like the point of a mandate is that you have to do it. <laughs> well, you know, they just asked for a pause, a timeout, so to speak, Kalia. Even after the Richmond police got half a million dollars in COVID CARES funding specifically for PPE that we have not seen them wear or use, And the legislature just gave millions more dollars to the state police and local police of COVID funding. And they're asking for a timeout. Defund them all. COVID not taking no breaks. She is passing laps around all of us. Asking for a pause. (laughs) As many may have heard by now, community member and activist rapper Frank Hunt is seeking community support as he continues to be held without bond at risk at the Richmond City Jail. He faced violence from police and others last summer and has remained dedicated to the community. Despite the community showing up and packing the courtroom to support him, Frank was recently denied bond and is continuing to fight his case. Community members are being asked to show up for Frank and show him and the courts he isn't alone this Thursday, August 26th at 10.30 a.m. at the Richmond Circuit Court. Head over to our Instagram for more information. And Nomi, would you mind just maybe even for the listeners reminding everybody the importance of showing up and what that can mean for folks? Yeah. So, I mean, when we were in court, something that the prosecutors were trying to claim is that, you know, there is no community support behind this person. This person poses as a threat to their community. And I think one of the main reasons that the the case has been moved up in terms of being heard is because the judge was able to see that that wasn't necessarily true. And so I think, especially during this time in Black August, when we are um, called to be supporting those who are directly facing targeting by the police in the in the carceral system, it's so important to show up and let them know, one, that they're not alone and um, do what we can to kind of mitigate the harms of the uh, criminal legal system. And bear witness as well. I think that's a big part of it. 
important for us to show up and keep each other safe. When we say we keep us safe, that also means that we have to show up for one another when the system tries to snatch us out of our community. Thanks for sharing that, Nomi. And, you know, we really do believe in the statement, free them all. And if we had the resources to show up to everyone and for everyone, I know that we would. And that's why we have these conversations on the show to encourage everyone to show up for each other. A Petersburg police detective has formally retired after a scandal involving missing evidence, including $13,000, was just exposed. Senior Detective Roosevelt Harris was placed on administrative leave this past May after being found guilty of misconduct and has since resigned from his position. According to the Richmond Times-Dispatch, Petersburg police officials discovered hidden quote unquote, evidence and missing documents assigned to Harris had been discarded in a dumpster outside of police headquarters and elsewhere. Now investigators believe a number of cases may have been impacted, may have been, anyway, may have been impacted during Harris's 23 years on the force. An investigative review of his cases has since been initiated. Well, Lord, I hope so. 23 years on the force. These have to be the white Harris's. Mm-mm. It's alarming to think that there's so many instances of this happening that just goes unrewarded or unfounded. And these are, when it comes to evidence, you know, this is life or death for some people. You know, this is incarceration for years for some people over things that were lost or hidden, you know, by shady pigs. In other police misconduct, following his indictment nearly two years ago, former Norfolk Sheriff Robert McCabe was convicted on 11 charges of fraud, public corruption, and conspiracy to commit money laundering after news broke that McCabe had been accepting personal bribes in exchange for granting city contracts. According to the Virginian pilot, during his tenure as sheriff, which spanned from 1994 to 2017, McCabe accepted extravagant gifts and thousands of dollars in cash payments from two men who had long-term contracts with the city jail, offering these vendors inside information on the jail's bidding process, contract extensions, and, and other exclusive benefits in exchange for the money. These luxury gifts included all-expense-paid trips to casinos, helicopter rides, football game tickets, steaks, catered parties, free dinners, and even an autographed guitar by a country singer known as Ronnie Don. The investigation also revealed that McCabe routinely used jail employees to run his personal errands, including chauffeuring the sheriff around in limousines, driving around his girlfriend, and taking care of his dogs, y'all. What? Wow. Not the girlfriend. Virginia. Sheriffs. Country singer Ronnie Don. They was living it up in Norfolk. Look, they got their own artists, casinos. They are really living it up on public dollars. Well, y'all, we're going to take a deep dive into the latest pandemic news with this week's COVID Watch. Are y'all ready? No, we ain't ready, but, you know, let's hear the real. Well, continuing our local COVID coverage, yesterday, Virginia reported over 3,000 new COVID infections, a number that hasn't been that high in over six months. COVID is on the rise. And like Nomi said, COVID ain't taking no breaks. 
as of last week, 44% of the state's residents still were not fully vaccinated. Beyond vaccinations, which we know are but one mitigation factor for COVID spread, schools are opening back up for in-person instruction, and there's still no statewide mask mandate in place. Nationally, the Food and Drug Administration approved the Pfizer vaccine for use. Before, it was being distributed via an emergency authorization by the FDA. Y'all, this is quite a big deal. It's likely that we'll see more vaccine requirements being put into place now that there is at least one vaccine with full FDA approval. For example, the Defense Department has already announced that all service members will be required to get the vaccine now that the FDA has approved it. Following the announcement of the Pfizer FDA approval, the international humanitarian organization Doctors Without Borders called on U.S.-based Pfizer and German-based BioNTech to immediately share the vaccine technology and knowledge with manufacturers on the African continent that could help boost the global supply. Doctors Without Borders is also calling on the U.S. government to demand these companies follow through. As y'all might remember, Pfizer received literally billions of dollars in public funding to accelerate the development of these vaccines and is one of only two corporations in the world producing these life-saving mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. Currently, only 1.7% of Africa's entire population is fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Frankly, this is the least that these corporations can do after hoarding the world's vaccine supply. 1.7% of the entire continent? That big continent. All 54 countries, y'all. Like, this is sick. And they're not even asking for them to hand over all of the hoarded vaccines. They're just saying, share the technology so that our labs can level up and create them ourselves. Mm-mm, that's too much autonomy there. Nah, we want to be in control. Too much money lost. Mm-hmm. We want to be in control of how much you get, when you get it, if you get it. Now nah, you want to make your own? Provide for your own? A hot mess. Mm. Well, in good news to wrap up our COVID watch for this week, we look to Alabama, one of the states with the lowest vaccination rates in the country, where Dorothy Oliver, an elderly Black woman, managed to get 94% of her small town vaccinated. Panola County has a population of 144 people, and the nearest health facility is dozens of miles away. Miss Oliver went door to door to answer her neighbors' questions and to get them signed up for the vaccine. She even took some people to get the vaccine. This story is a testament to the power of dialogue and persistence in getting our loved ones vaccinated. Mm. Thank you, Dorothy Oliver. We need more Dorothy Olivers here in Virginia. Come on. Lastly, in national news, A new report released by the Movement for Black Lives shows evidence that the federal government deliberately targeted Black Lives Matter protesters via heavy-handed criminal prosecutions in an attempt to disrupt and discourage the global movement that swept the nation last summer. First off, that doesn't surprise me. So surprise, surprise, the federal government was deliberately targeting us. 
The report is titled Struggle for Power, the Ongoing Persecution of Black Movement by the U.S. Government and analyzes data from 326 criminal cases initiated by U.S. federal prosecutors over alleged conduct related to protests in the wake of Floyd's murder and the police killings of other Black Americans from May 31st, 2020 to October 25th, 2020. The report also points to the stark difference in how the government handled COVID-19 protesters against local government shutdowns and mass mandates amid the pandemic during the same period. In response to the report, Makia Green, a liberation organizer and co-conductor of the Washington, D.C.-based group Harriet's Wildest Dreams, said, quote, regardless of how we are often painted, Activists are people who have the audacity to believe that we can live in a better world where people are safe, where people are not afraid of being murdered by the police. Green also said, there are attempts to stifle our movement, but it's truly a reflection to our supporters, to our allies, and to the folks who showed up in the streets last year of how beautiful and how powerful this movement is, end quote. Makia is a comrade and a friend, and I have to say they really said it here. I think that this really sums it up. All of us have known that our comrades have been prosecuted unfairly, many of them slapped with federal charges when it could have just been a state charge, when it shouldn't have been a charge at all. We slept outside of the jails, done the jail and court support, and we know that they're coming after us. And so all we can do is continue to dream and build a better world while we're still able to be free. Come on. They can kill a revolutionary, but they cannot kill a revolutionary imagination, y'all. Moving into our international news, the Australian Defense Force, or the ADF, recently deployed 300 military personnel into Western Sydney in order to, quote, ensure that the stay-at-home orders are observed, end quote, stated Police Commissioner Mick Fuller. The eight areas facing hyper-surveillance in Western Sydney's local government area encompasses a mostly working-class, racially marginalized refugee community. According to BBC News, these residents have been instructed to wear masks outdoors and are prohibited from traveling more than three miles from their homes, whereas residents of the wider, more affluent eastern Sydney can travel up to 10 miles away from their homes and aren't required to wear masks when outdoors. A citywide lockdown remains in place until August 28th as residents continue to protest the militarization of their neighborhoods. I think it's important to elevate this narrative specifically because I think sometimes Australia's uh, response to the vaccine kind of serves to erase their narrative as this imperialist white supremacist state that is always actively criminalizing indigenous and other marginalized peoples. So I think it's really important that solidarity to the folks resisting against this militarization out in Australia and Western Sydney. Also, can we talk about how they're called the ADF? And that sounds real close to the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. Mm-mm. I'm sure that's no accident. Five organizations in Chile have united to establish a new electoral bloc ahead of the country's upcoming November elections. The Front for Working Class Unity has come together to fight back against neoliberal solutions for peace and amplify the demands of popular uprising that erupted across Chile back in 2019. Their demands include the immediate freedom of political prisoners and the Mapuche people, a solidarity pension system, free and quality public health care, a national housing system, land reparations, an end to multinational plundering, 
self-determination for Mupachi people, and the annulment of the anti-protest, anti-terrorist, and anti-union laws. The Front for Working Class Unity is also calling for an end to imperialist aggression against Cuba, as well as an end to the occupation of the Palestinian land by Israeli forces. You can read the full declaration by visiting leftvoiceinternational.com. Okay, come through Front for Working Class Unity. They had demands. The list. The list. The inclusivity. I see Chile. Y'all coming through with the solidarity, too. While wealthy nations such as the U.S. and the U.K. are on track to begin administering booster shots of the COVID-19 vaccine, less than 2% of people living within continental Africa have even received the first dose of the medicine. Over the past month, there has been an 80% increase in infections across the continent as the Delta variant continues to devastate African countries. Currently, at least half of all Americans and Europeans are fully vaccinated. Meanwhile, studies estimate that with the current rate of vaccinations, nearly 70% of African nations will enter 2022 with less than 10% of their populations vaccinated against COVID-19. Researchers predict that the virus will cause more destruction to African economies than other recent crises, including the 2008 global recession and the 2014 Ebola outbreak. Wow. Damn. Devastating news. That's why it's laughable that folks really think that, you know, this pandemic is over. It's really just beginning when you examine just the the vast impact of vaccine imperialism and the effects that it's having. Lastly, in international news, after 20 long years of invasion and violent occupation, the United States is finally set to withdraw its troops from Afghanistan after suffering a major defeat. According to Brown University's Cost of War Project, nearly 800,000 people have lost their lives due to America's fabricated war on terror, including over 300,000 civilians across several countries. Military officials have since admitted that there was no campaign plan and that higher-ups neglected to define a metric for what winning the war actually looked like. According to investigative journalist and author of the Afghanistan Papers, Craig Whitlock, quote, the U.S. military officials and advisors described explicit and sustained efforts to deliberately mislead the public. This was in order to create an illusion that they were winning something, though exactly what U.S. officials hoped to accomplish in Afghanistan remained elusive. Whitlock writes, with their complicit silence, military and political leaders avoided accountability and dodged reappraisals that could have changed the outcome or shortened the conflict. The Taliban has since taken over the nation following the swift retreat of the Afghan army, which has worked in service of the puppet regime previously installed in Kabul by the U.S. government. Listeners should be reminded that Joe Biden was an adamant supporter of the Afghanistan war. In fact, the then senator took part in a unanimous vote in support of the 2001 resolution that authorized the use of military force against nations, organizations, or persons that President George Bush determined were responsible for the attacks on September 11th. Wow, I didn't even realize that was the language of the resolution. Mm. That's all for this week's Race Capital Reframe. Stay tuned for the rest of our episode, Justice for Orlando. Before we get started with our interview this week, just as a note to the listeners, this interview was pre-recorded. 
So stay tuned for after our conversation with Jennifer for the most recent updates in Orlando's case and some commentary from our host. Okay, this week on Race Capital, we have Jennifer Carter, who is Orlando Carter's mother. Jen, thanks so much for being on the show. You're welcome. We are so sorry that circumstances have brought you here. State violence has brought you here to the show and in your current situation that you all have been dealing with since New Year's Eve. And we gave a little bit of an intro of what happened to Orlando on New Year's Eve. And all right. Um, my name is Jennifer Carter. And I'm the mother of Orlando Carter, who unfortunately um, went through some rough experience on New Year's Eve with the cops. It was supposed to be a traffic violation stop. And my son wound up getting multiple gunshots to the back and run over by the police vehicle where his leg was broken badly. Um, and it's very, very rough because it's been all over the news, especially in the black and brown community, a lot of racial profiling, a lot of police brutality, and it's not right and it's not fair. You know, we're, we're people like everybody else. We shouldn't be treated differently because of our skin color. Right. And thank you so much for sharing, Jen. That night of New Year's Eve, would you mind just walking us through your experience as Orlando's mother? That was one of the worst nights of, of my life. And it gives me goosebumps just saying that. Um, because I was in the middle of making dinner, it was New Year's Eve. And, you know, we have this tradition, he was going to do laundry and he was supposed to come over and have dinner with us um, New Year's Eve. This is our tradition. We bring in the new year together and after 12, do whatever you want. And five o'clock, well, like five, five thirty, um, I'm making dinner and I get a message from his friend telling me that he was shot by the by the police mm -hmm. and that they were taking him to the hospital. So my husband, my daughter and I, um, we all go to the hospital and we weren't able to find out any information. It was like, yeah, he was there, but that's all they could tell me. I wasn't allowed to see him. I wasn't allowed to talk to him. Um, and it was, it was really, really hard because it's like that, that worry, you know, like is like a, a agony. Yeah. Yeah. And 
the fact that they were that they refused to give me information was even harder. Mm-hmm. It's like you can call me to try to get personal information of his, but you can't let me know whether my son is okay or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether um, anything, right? And it didn't matter how many times I called. Um, begging, pleading, you know, I knew I was Orlando's emergency contact and it took him sneaking to make a phone call to let me know what happened um, briefly. And then shortly after that, the nurse, I guess, found out that he had used the phone and took the phone out of his room. So it was like five days of him being in the hospital without knowing anything. The only thing that I knew was that he was going to have surgery the following day. Oh my goodness, Jen. And this is why we always bring up the institutional and the structural oppression that's happening because that's the medical industry that's not sharing the information and that's continuing to protect the police and their own investigation by just really leaving you in the dark about the health of your son. Mm -hmm. So after the five days, how did Orlando get out of the hospital? Um, Orlando went straight from the hospital to jail. So it was, they did the surgery. And once he was able to, I guess, pretty much like, I wouldn't even say stand on his own because he was hopping around. Um, They sent him to jail. And that's how I was able to hear from him because he called me from there and I put money on the account and that's how we was able to like talk briefly. And he told me, you know, what happened. And then it was a struggle to get him out, Mm -hmm. to get him home. So that way he can get the medical care that he needs and all the other things and physical therapy and um, uh, psychiatric help for what happened, just everything. Like he's not the same person. So on New Year's Eve, an event kicked off a life-changing moment for Orlando and you and his family and has emotional and medical physical scars And all of this started on New Year's Eve from a traffic violation? Yes, ma'am. And this makes no sense for any of us. Um, And we are so sorry to hear this. I can't imagine what this answer is, but how is Orlando, how are you all doing? Um, we're still struggling with it every day. Every day is a struggle, um, especially for him. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't sleep. The first 
the first four months that he was home, he wouldn't sleep at all. The only time he would sleep would be during the day when everybody was up and he, I guess, hear people walking around. Um, when I take him out to go to the doctors and stuff, and once we get into Richmond City, it's like this, like anxiety that just builds in him. And the minute he see the cops, it's like a paranoia. Um, and there's a lot of mental, mental damage that they did, you know, he relives the moment. There's still a lot of things that don't make sense. And it's really, it's tough on him physically and emotionally and on everybody else. Yeah. So we know that you all had another court appearance with Judge Cheeks. Yes, we did. Could you tell us a little bit about what happened? It was like, like a spectacle. Mm -hmm. um, he, to my, my personal opinion, um, I think that he was upset because he was asked to recuse himself and um, maybe he felt like his integrity was questioned, but, you know, at the end of the day, when you make statements like uh, the police acted uh, accordingly, uh, you earned your bullets and things of that nature. And it, I don't know, he, I don't know what to think of him. I don't think that my son would get a fair trial in his courtroom. It's like, they're always protecting the cops and they forget about the victims and what the victims gotta go through. And it's always in their defense, um, I was in fear for my life. I was in fear for my life okay, well, show the body cam footage. Let's see what happened. Right, right. What is the response around releasing the body cam footage? Um, so far, everything is basically like up in the air. Um, all we know is that it was continued. And if you look at the, the different articles from were there from everyone that has been in the courtroom. The There's different reasons as to why he was stopped. And this is my thing. Our vehicle has tinted windows. The windows were up. Hmm. So this is what I want to understand. How can you see that somebody is fidgety through tinted windows and it's almost dusk. Right. I How does he look suspicious or 
what was it? Did he look suspicious? Did he not put his signal on? Did he not have his headlights on? Like, which one was it? Right. Uh, Ali Rocket, who has been covering this, also released an article February the 11th. You can find uh, these resources in the description of this episode. And she titled the article, Officer's Testimony on Thursday Differs from RPD Account of Police Shooting on New Year's Eve. So as you're saying, Jen, they have very different stories now of what happened that night and why he mm -hmm. was even stopped in the first place. Um, and all of this, it still blows my mind that all of this is still happening to someone that is physically healing from so much trauma as well, not to mention mm -hmm. the, the mental and is extracting money from you all. There have been several campaigns online to support you all financially through this process. What are some of the expenses that you all are encountering throughout this process? Um, all because RPD has had some reason to pull them over. We don't know what it was and has left him with gunshots, mental and physical trauma. Um, he has a lot of medical expenses. He takes uh, medication. He's okay. Where I know so far, let me see. I just have his bills. I know one bill from MCV is like $10,000. And I think that's the day of his surgery. Um, I think the insurance that they gave him is kind of limited. So it limits, I what they pay and we go to physical therapy let me see twice a week um and it, we're traveling from far because i live in hopewell so we're coming from hopewell all the way to richmond um he goes to physical therapy in stony point his psychiatrist is in richmond city the telehealth helps a lot mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, because with all of these appointments, you also have to travel and get gas and, and those are expenses as well. And then I have to take him out to, to eat. So that way, you know, cause it's the, the traveling by the time I get home, it's late. Mm -hmm. Um, and just his expenses, his things that he needs, like right now, um, I feel like I need to get him a cell phone so that way he can also help keep track of some of his things mm -hmm. and be able to talk to his psychiatrist and his therapist in private without nobody being there or saying, Ma, can I use your phone? Mm -hmm. um, let me see. The, just the electronic monitor device alone is very expensive. Um, so he is released on bond with a home monitoring device that you all have to pay for monthly on top of all of these other expenses as well. Yes, ma'am. It's about $350 a month. Wow. And Orlando obviously cannot work right now, right? Mm -hmm. So... This is a, a family that is taking this on after Richmond police officers have committed such violence 
And now he can't work. He can't communicate with his folks. He can't, he's, his mobility is limited. Um, we are just so sorry that, that this is what is happening. You mentioned before about the body cam footage. Mm-hmm. Have you all seen the body cam footage? We saw it. And, and after seeing it, you feel very strongly that the public also needs to see it. Yes, they need to see what, what was done once, what transpired. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you believe that if the public saw this body camera, that they would feel that it, an injustice was done? Yes. And I also just want to remind the listeners that because there is a current investigation and the trial is still ongoing, that there are some things just about the case that you are unable to talk about and, and say, and we're really encouraging people to visit some of the, the press by RTD, as well as the Dogwood that has been covering Orlando's case. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that Orlando has taken on so much since this and has changed, but I would love for you to share with us a little bit about Orlando um, that is really outside of this traumatic event. Orlando was a fun, charismatic person. Um, He loved to write music. Um, he loved to listen to music, make music. Uh, he loved basketball. That was like his number one thing. Uh, a lot of his childhood memories is from when my husband and I bought him uh, his first basketball uh, hoop thing for outside when we moved to Virginia. And he used to love to play basketball always. And now the fact that he may not be able to play basketball ever again is something that hurts him and he struggles to deal with. Uh, not too long ago in one of his recent physical therapy appointments, his physical therapist told him that he might not even be able to run. Oh, wow. So that's something that's really, really difficult for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for somebody who was like really, really active and used to love to do all of these things, it's like now you can't even sit still for five minutes. Right. Right. There are many names sketched in people's minds because loved ones have passed and been murdered by police violence. In this case, Orlando has survived, thankfully, but what we've heard this episode from you is what it's like dealing with police violence if you are able to survive it Mm -hmm. and what that means for the family as well 
is there anything that um, you would like for the listeners to hear, to think about when, when thinking about survivors of police violence? It's a lot of, it's a lot of mental trauma. The, the physical scars, they heal, but the mental doesn't, the mental stays there. And that's, that's the hardest part, you know? And sometimes when you go through things in life, it's also hard to accept that this is the way things are gonna be now. You know, I'm 27 years old and I have a long rod from my kneecap all the way down to my ankle with 16 screws in my leg and all these scars to remind me of that day. Not only that, New Year's Eve will never be the same. Mm -hmm. It's like, while everybody else gets to celebrate and party and have a good time with family and friends, he's going to be going through emotional trauma at 530 Mm -hmm. every New Year's. Mm-hmm. Every time he sees a police officer or he's approached by a police officer, he's going to feel that anxiety. Mm-hmm. Like, can I trust this guy? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, something else that's incredibly hard to think about is that he is also facing time behind bars because of Mm -hmm. this night yeah and again that is just beyond me that there could be even more to come and why I, I would like again for you to just tell us a little bit about what you're asking for as far as the tapes whether that's the tapes being released the charges dropped um you know, a, a lot of, I've heard from a lot of families and things about reparations and payments for police violence because what you're describing with his physical um, healing is going to be for a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. And so please tell the listeners one more time, um, what are you asking for from from public support to the prosecutors, as well as how to support um, Orlando and the family expenses? Um, I'm going to continue to try to do uh, like little fundraisers and keep uh, the GoFundMe up because Mm -hmm. the expenses are, you know, a lot. And right now with COVID and everything like that, and people just starting to get back to work, you know, Mm-hmm. finances is kind of hard and I still have his vehicle well our vehicle that we have to get repaired um 
Mm-hmm. And so you have a GoFundMe that listeners will be able to find on our page as well as a cash app. Would you mind sharing that for our listeners? Um, my cash app is Jen Jen 913. Mm-hmm. And that's J-E-N-J-E-N 913. Um, and so right now, as far as supporting you all mutual aid, it is a, a, finan- a financial ask to keep you all lifted and supported and so that the healing needs can happen. Yes, I, I want the, the, you know, the truth to come out and I want justice for him and justice for all the other individuals that have gone through it. I mean, just when he went through his, uh, there was Xavier, God rest his soul. Um, you know, before that it was George Floyd. It's like, how many times do we have to keep seeing our black and brown community being abused by the police and them thinking that it's okay? They should be held accountable for their actions the same way we are held accountable for our actions. Mm-hmm. And, and we are seeing it's not just the police because what you've also illuminated is that our judges are also practicing this very biased lens that is targeting us and not allowing mm-hmm. for justice. Yeah, it's a lack of transparency in the, the police department. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When is the next court date, Jennifer? We don't know as of yet. So we don't know, like basically we're up in the air and I think that makes it worse on his anxiety. When I tell you my son just paces all day, that's all he does. And if he is standing still, he's marching in place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because you do not know when your next court date That just means that's at least $350 another month that you have to pay and have to pay. Mm -hmm. Jennifer, I am so sorry that this is happening. I wish that there is so much more that we could do, but we will be continuing to follow this story. Is there anything else that you want to say before we let you I want to say... Thank you to everyone who has been there and has supported him and has made donations towards um, his expenses and all of his um, needs. You know, without you guys, we wouldn't have been able to survive this long. Your emotional support means a lot to us. Mm. And we will continue to really be there and do all we can. And if you are listening to this episode, we really encourage you all to think about your role in this level of support. Jennifer Carter, mother of Orlando Carter. You can follow Jennifer Carter on Instagram at jenjen913, J-E-N-J-E-N 913 to continue to 
find out what's going on with her and with Orlando and his case. Um, we would also like to lift bail fund that has also done a lot of support here in this work to ensure that Orlando and the family has some their needs. And Jennifer, we're just going to continue to stay in touch and please let us know how we can continue to support you. powerful interview. Thank you to Jen for coming on and sharing with us. Yeah, no matter how many times I have this conversation with her, it breaks my heart every single time. But it also is so inspiring to just know and hear the way that they are fighting and surviving, but also how much we really have to show up for them. Well, so what are the updates as of now, Chelsea? Well, as we just heard from Jennifer, was that Judge Cheeks was really being forced and pushed by her, the attorney and the people to recuse himself. And the good news is that he has. So he did step down. Um, Orlando has another court date, October the 8th at 9 a.m. His lawyer is filing a motion to suppress. So as I mentioned, because Judge Cheeks has stepped down, that means he has been assigned a new judge. The awful news is, is that he has been assigned to Judge Bradley Cavado. Oh my God. Yeah. So some reminders to the listeners about Judge Cavado is that he has actually had many complaints filed on him, even stories from just this past summer that former city councilman Saeed el filed a complaint saying that Judge Cavado knew the law but issued rulings demonstrating, quote, his lack of impartiality and his intent to side with the plaintiff, end quote. Now, a lot of people remember Judge Cavado because the judge had removed himself from hearing any cases dealing with Confederate statues because he lives within the Monument Avenue Historic District and just blocks from the contested statue of Confederate Robert E. Lee and the site where the statue of the Confederate General J.E.B. Stewart stood. So he has many conflicts of interest, but a lot of power. And now the life of Orlando Carter will lie in his hands. Well, we will certainly have to hold the Carter family in support and keep an eye on this case, especially now knowing who is presiding over it. And if people are interested in supporting, you can donate directly to Jennifer Carter, Orlando Carter, Cash App, JenJen913, or Venmo, J-E-N dash Carter dash one three. So if you're feeling called to show up at court, a reminder, it is at October 8th at 9 a.m. We thank Jennifer Carter for coming on. We send all of our love to the family and to Orlando. And we really appreciate the listeners, not just hearing their story, 
but moving their feet to support our community. Well, that's all for this week's Race Capital. Thanks so much for listening. Make a note to grab your limited edition Race Capital merchandise. We've designed the perfect pack it up LeVar messaging for you to wear anywhere this fall or winter. Visit www.bonfire.com slash race dash capital dash merch or search Race Capital on the Bonfire site. And you can also find the link in our bio on all our social media pages. As always, thank you for supporting independent media and don't miss this opportunity to wear your narrative. Pack it up, LeVar. I'm Chelsea Higgs-Wise. Kalia Harris. And Omi Isaac. Make sure you tune in next week right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Peace, y'all.